This is Speaker for the Living, a podcast where we explore human trafficking, forced labor, and all things related. My name is Seth Dare. I am one of the hosts of the podcast. I'm here with JJ Jen Flown. And uh, what up? we talk we're about back. trafficking. Yeah, we're, we're back. We uh, do other things in our lives, and um, <laughs> I've... I have multiple jobs involve websites, involves researching extremism. I do some business trips, and uh, JJ still in grad school, pursuing her PhD. But uh, we're both graduates of the Joseph Corbell School of International Studies Master's Program. Uh-huh. I have a Master's in International Human Rights with a focus on human trafficking. And uh, JJ, you did international studies, and then you're staying on to study what? So I am I am doing my PhD in international studies with a particular focus in um, gender, uh, gender and ethnicity as it relates to political participation, specifically within East Asia, and surprise, surprise, human trafficking. Because I always will be the most fun at a party when I break out my stats on slavery. True, true. And I've, and I've missed you all out there, guys. We've missed you. Well, today, there's other things we could talk about. We could talk about politics. We could talk about immigration things. But then there's enough of that in the news. But we will talk about something that's sort of factual related. How about true crime and human trafficking? Which is a topic that I kind of suggested as a fever dream. And then Seth took me seriously, and I was so excited. Um, because for anyone who knows me or maybe from the weird side tangents I've gotten on in previous podcasts, uh, I am a true crime junkie. I am someone who grew up, uh, my dad is a former police officer and he introduced me to watching, um, NYPD blue way too early in retrospect as a child. And so I grew up watching, you know, Columbo and all these sorts of like murder procedurals at the time. Uh, and I have continued to to do so. And now that podcasting has become such a big part of my life, I've become, and in, in grad school with sort of the lack of time that you have for fun things, I have become obsessed with podcasts, specifically true crime, true crime podcasts. So I listen to uh, my favorite murder. I listen to True Crime Garage. I listen to Case File. I listen to Sword and Scale. And if you looked at my computer, I, I do look kind of like I'm planning to be a serial killer uh, and or an extremist focusing on China. It really depends on what I'm researching the particular day. But what I noticed um, being a true crime junkie is that while a lot of crimes are discussed, mo- normally murder obviously is the big one, but also sort of bank robberies, major con men, things of that nature. Uh, human trafficking doesn't get discussed in these podcasts, which is at this point, you know, I've listened to hundreds of them. And so it's so interesting to me that we don't talk about uh, a, a, a common crime that, that I would think would be popular in, in sort of this true crime genre. And in fact, right, um, that makes well, sense. Yeah. And, and, and so why don't we talk about it? Well, this is where we should mention that uh, trafficking, especially sex trafficking, ends up being sensationalized. Yeah. Including with that uh, new one with Donald Sutherland and so on. Like, 
where it's like, well, okay, people are talking about trafficking, but it's kind of the same old narrative. Oh, yeah. And I want to make it very clear, too, that um, when I talk about even sort of maybe this is this says so much about how sex trafficking and labor trafficking are like conceived or discussed as these totally separate things is there is exactly going through and doing my research on this. Um, I was pulling up examples of uh, in true crime or, or, or crime related shows rather, not necessarily true crime itself, but in crime related shows. So for example, like law and order and CSI crimes related to trafficking were overwhelmingly sex crime related. Uh, the closest I got to one that was labor trafficking is I found a old law and order SVU uh, where Elliot Stabler encounters a, like a, a, a child slavery ring that is a Restiavik related ring. So that is, if you look at one of our former podcasts, that is on the use of children as forced domestic helpers. But before going yeah. any further, we probably should clarify like the difference between police procedurals and true crime shows and oh, so on. Yeah. But I'll start first because I really don't know much about the genre. Uh, there was one late night... <laughs> Where well, I, was, I know way too much. <laughs> right. Where I'm I'm sure I've watched shows and there was one night where one of my friends put on Capote and mm -hmm. uh, he fell asleep and then I decided, let's see, do I want to watch any more? But where uh, Truman Capote went and did a lot of interviews and research and interviewed the perpetrator and now I'm forgetting the name of the book. What's the name of the book? Uh, In Cold Blood. So he wrote In Cold Blood, which was the uh, beginning of the modern true crime narrative. He didn't start the genre, but that's one of the more popular ones, uh, that in now Helter Skelter, story of the Manson family. But it involves doing a lot of research and putting together a nonfiction narrative of the story. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, and what, what's interesting is that, so that's kind of also changed too. So what was okay. really common pre, even like pre sort of Capote is that you did have these true crime narratives that would come out, but like the true would be like heavily in quotation marks. They were kind of these petty, dreadful stories. So probably the most common one is that you hear a lot about is H.H. H. Holmes, um, who you know, in, in the late 1890s, um, one of the things he did under a variety of names, he was a man who basically constructed like a murder castle uh, in Chicago and is thought to have killed uh, almost 200 people. And so after his his death, there were a number of books published that gained a lot of popularity that were supposed to be sort of the you know, the true story of H.H. H. Holmes or the true story of sort of, a, he's, he's credited as being maybe one of the first known um, American serial killers. Um, so, you know, so we would have stories like that that circulated, but they were very much dramatized. So they said that they were true crime or they said that they were uh, a reporting of them, but in fact they were just sort of these heavily dramatized, you know, inevitably they'd have like a conversation with Satan midway through them. That, that sort of thing. Based on a true story. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm using air quotes story. here. Yeah. So it, it was basically, so the difference, the difference that you have there is maybe sort of between 
like a true crime sort of thing that would be presented maybe on like a Discovery Channel or as a documentary versus like a true crime sort of lifetime movie, maybe. Um, another one that came out right after sort of the, the very popular H.H. Home stories was the story of Belle Guinness, who was a woman who allegedly, she was never tried, but allegedly murdered over 20 men uh, as, as kind of a Black Widow character and additionally books were were published about her uh newspaper articles um and belginis is interesting because it's the first time you have someone who who said he was a psychologist who knows who who gave a profile of her and wrote a book on sort of her profile but so a lot of these times these would be a mix of actual recordings of of the crime itself you know from from police court transcripts and then sort of this fictionalized background so when we start to get to Capote is when you actually start to see sort of crime journalism becoming its own separate thing where it's like you can't make up stories anymore about the background and history of these killers. You actually have to like interview and do sort of your due diligence and investigate them. But if you're if you're a true crime junkie like me, you've read lots of like really terrible stories from like the 1800s and like the 1920s on true crime where inevitably, again, like they have a conversation with Satan. Uh, they were... They blame jazz music a lot in sex for everything. So that's always fun. Uh, parents, if you ever want to keep your children from participating in sex and jazz music. Right. Um, well, and on that note with the press, with, with all the uh, fake news and all the other stuff, all the wor other words that are thrown around, like if you go back 100 years, that wasn't the pinnacle of, of investigative journalism. Like yeah, yellow journalism and sensationalism. There was lots and, of bad journalism a hundred years ago, and it's also very like purple, purple prosy. Um, a lot of people who were writing things as moral tracks uh, or to to sell other things that sort of tied into it. So, yeah, so a lot of what we get for for initial true crime reports are kind of actually just like awful, like very poorly put together. Um, but what you see with Capote is he sort of ushers in this era of like good true crime reporting uh, where it's much more clinical, much more academic, much more objective. And of course, like just Truman Capote being a phenomenal writer um, makes it even better. And then it, it slides even more into where you then end up having writers like Ant Rule and whatnot in, in the 80s who become like these huge names and actually do things like correspond with Ted Bundy in prison in order to write like a very full um, in-depth book. Um, what is important for some of our younger listeners who may not remember this is that we don't actually have true crime explode into TV screens and, and be so like pure true crime, like so crime as it's happening now, real people, real, real victims, um, real victimizers until the OJ Simpson trial, that's when you actually get court TV and, and things of that nature. That was really the first television show or the first sort of moment that um, America tuned in and, and was watching television happen again and again and again. And so court TV launches in 1990 and you see then um, sort of just this, this American focus on crime just continue, which I think has only, you know, increased with things like making the documentaries, making a murderer and the jinx. And then, 
you know, podcasts like Serial that then I think started the true crime boom in the explosion. Um, and so one of the things that I am linking to all of you guys, if you're interested, this has nothing really to do with trafficking, but if you're interested in sort of the history of true crime on television or true crime journalism, I've linked you to uh, actually a phenomenal article uh, by Cheryl Eddy on that. But what's important to note with this, and what I think Seth was kind of hinting at at the beginning here, is you see then sort of this explosion of the conversations about human trafficking take on the same sort of sensationalism and follow the same sort of attention, you know, in, in the media and in, in the way that it's reported uh, throughout this time. So again, in the 1800s, you have books, I'm linking all of you to one um, on the white slave trade. Uh, so again, very purple prose, not actually, you know, built on uh, any actual information, but very much meant as a, uh, moral text to frighten you um, to um, maintain control of, of sort of women's sexuality um, and sell papers. Oh yeah. And to sell papers. Like obviously ultimately the, this is a money-making scheme, right? And then how that has just slowly continued actually in, in very similar ways with the way that we've discussed murder. I'm also linking, linking everyone to, um, just a wonderful image, which is a book that I actually bought. It took me forever to hunt down on um, on eBay, but is a, is a series of books from the 30s that are all about the white slave trade and sort of the vice that's happening. And so some these like sort of dime store novels that you could pick up, these sort of detective novels that were normally very poorly written and all about how, you know, America's good, sweet white girls were being stolen. Yeah. So one question I have about true crime, and I'll just uh, get your thoughts on it. There seems to be the potential to be invasive and sensational with this. Like if you're going to interview people like the victim's family, for instance, or the perpetrator, uh, there's potential for controversy. There's potential for not being sufficiently sensitive. There's the timing so how has that been done? Has it been done well? Is there sometimes a lag between when the event happens and when the story comes out? Like, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so I think, I, I, you know, I, I think that there's certainly something to be said about doing, doing true crime, you know, reporting on it in the moment that it's happening. I, it, mm-hmm. it is a news story. Uh, it is it is a crime. Now, obviously, there are, there are ways to do it better than others. Like, there's sort of a, a crime writer's code of conduct that I think is actually quite similar to what sort of people within human trafficking follow, which is to say only cite what you know to be true and you can back up. So, like, you know, always kind of show your math. Don't make sort of leaps of who is guilty and who is not. Um that all victims are victims. There's no hierarchy. So all victims deserve a voice. Um, all victims deserve to be portrayed as they truly were. Uh, and then as you see, there's actually a, like an online, God, I'm like making myself sound so sad. There's an online web true crime forum that I follow uh, called web sleuths. And they, where people kind of do, uh, this is lay people who are interested in crime. And, they have actually etiquette rules, which is, you know, you must always be friendly to to the victim, the family, and the friends. 
um, someone who has not been designated by law enforcement as a suspect, you are you are not allowed to go after them. You are not allowed to make inappropriate comments. Uh, that people are allowed to have privacy. So you know, if if this is a case um, where the police have said that you know, say someone's up for for the murder of someone, and they say that it's entirely financial reasons, you don't have the right to then maybe go digging into the sexual history or past of the other individuals involved. So basically just be a good human rules, but we see this with, with human trafficking, this conversation with after the fact, what do you do with victims? And and then the answer is, is that you have to, I think, acknowledge that all victims have, you know, all victims are survivors and all survivors have agency. They're allowed to make their own decisions, but that you shouldn't be profiting from them in a way that is gross. Does that make sense? I think it's kind of, mm-hmm. that's kind of how it is. But the big one and the one that seems to be debated the most now because of things like making a murder and serial that like are, are very clearly maybe productions that have a particular point of view of who's guilty and who's not, that if you're not producing purely objective work that you then need to state your biases, you know, so open it up with, and this particular conversation or this particular presentation of true crime we are not discussing the following things because uh we find that we 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 find overwhelmingly we think that this person is guilty or this person is not well and there's always a challenge before somebody is convicted or or before there's a plea that uh, law enforcement when they're doing an investigation will not disclose what's happening in an ongoing investigation. And that's the thing too, that I think people who are into true crime or true crime reporters or people who are into human trafficking and who consider themselves human trafficking advocates have to remember is that uh, we are not law enforcement. And so there are things that we don't know and actually that we don't have a right to know for the sake of other people's privacy and then due process within the law. And that just because someone has been accused, it doesn't mean they're guilty. Um, and that these are things that do need to be judged in court. I have linked guy you all to a podcast that I think does a good job of that, which is the Atlanta Monster podcast, which I think does a good job of showing maybe this guy who was arrested did it, maybe he didn't. Here's the for, here's the against. Uh, the in particular, the the head researcher and the head podcaster is very clear between this is a definitive fact that we have pulled, maybe say from this particular police report versus this is my opinion. And so I think it's a good example of, you know, the work done well. But uh, JJ and I are both based in Colorado. And a few years back, we had the uh, Aurora theater shooting with James mm-hmm. Holmes, the, the Batman shooter. And uh, that was one of the profiles I uh, worked on for case studies and for uh, my researching extremism job. And, it was really crazy to realize that his trial was public and that yep. it's online and that you have websites and Pinterest and all with all of the evidence and people looking at it, people looking at it from there's multiple ones looking at it from a, a mental health and you know what, what's the issues there. But uh, it's just crazy amount of information. Have you looked into any of those details at any point? JJ? Yeah, and in, and in fact, so the the James Holm case is actually one that started, I think, a lot of this conversation about sort of the pros and cons of like the true crime industry, like the true crime fan uh, fan industry. Because on one hand, it's great that all this information is actually there and physically public. You think that this helps with sort of judicial transparency, um, that this is going to keep 
you know, people from being wrongly incarcerated, that this allows people to sort of like actually like be involved with judicial processes. But at the same time, you know, is this is this re-traumatizing for victims or, or family members of the victims? Is it um, giving too much attention or credit to a particular shooter? And then are there particular crimes that do get this attention and do get this level of transparency where, say, like generally um, crimes involving people of color uh, in, in impoverished areas don't get that attention? And so this is just sort of more... Um, passive victimizing through who has access to sort of this open transparency or not. Um, but I would say as, as Colorado residents, I mean, there are people who run tours to go see the house where John Benet Ramsey was killed. Like you can go on them. Can't go, you can't go on the house, but you can take a tour where they take you all around town and show things like the neighborhood where, where a little girl was killed. And so the general feeling, I, my personal feeling within as, as a member of true, crime sort of communities who knows people who have done these things that's not okay uh that that's taking it too far that then turns sort of something you're interested into pure entertainment as opposed to sort of uh an interesting area of inquiry um but i know there are plenty of people um within sort of that are considered themselves true crime fans fans who wouldn't agree with me at all um but i think but i think that's sort of the line you and i take with human trafficking too Right. Like I, I am most assuredly a survivor advocate. I testify. I go to events. I do academic work. I do consulting. I do research work. You know, we do we do, you know, certainly I'm getting a Ph.D. because I've made some bad choices <laughs> in it, you mm-hmm. know, that sort of thing. Um, but, you know, I never should benefit in terms of feeling better about myself via someone suffering. That seems to be a pretty clear line for me. Well, two things just, that come to mind to spring off James Holmes. Yeah. And and yes, totally agree on that. Okay. I, I had a feeling that you weren't going to fight me on that one <laughs> and you weren't going to be like, but there was, there was like a teeny tiny percent of me that was going to be like, yeah, JJ, I went on that tour. <laughs> I got the t-shirt. When I first moved here, we were in some sort of orientation for a job and I mentioned for some reason for what I was doing, John Benet Ramsey. It's like, Oh, do yeah. you, do you all know this? And they're like, yeah, it's like everyone already had enough. This is late nineties. Yeah. But, uh, so relating to James Holmes and I think when I talk about both of these in a way, so there were the people that identified with James Holmes and, had a certain understanding of his psyche. And so that's, mm-hmm. and then there's also the people who came up with conspiracy theories, but to, to tone it down a bit, having some understanding of the perpetrator is mm-hmm. seems like one potential value and being able to think about what happened and come up with your own theories. Like the, those seem like those would be two things that people who follow true crime would do. Is that the case? Oh yeah. 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 Everyone, everyone has their pet theories and everyone has, um, sort of their, you know, uh, crimes that they're interested in. And then sometimes like these, these are amazing. Um, for example, thanks to a Reddit community that is involved in sort of true crime, they actually identified, um, Jason Callahan, who was, um, a, a young man who had been killed in 1995 in Virginia and had only been known as the Grateful Doe because he was wearing a Grateful Dead t-shirt. 
Uh, he had never been identified, and people didn't know who he was. It was this big mystery. All they had was this T-shirt and a handwritten note. And a bunch of web sleuths, you know, identified this young man and, and let a family know that had been looking for their son for, for decades at this point, you know, who, where he was. So everyone has sort of their, their pet things that, that they're interested in. The problem that I have is that it, it's kind of like anything on the Internet. You can take it too far. It's, I think it's, it's kind of like being a fan of something. I do deeply enjoy Marina of Marina and the Diamonds. It is perfectly reasonable for me to buy all of her albums, to be a member of her fan site, to like retweet her, go to her concerts, all of those things, perfectly normal. The minute I like show up in her hotel room without permission and try to like steal a lock of her hair, that's like when <laughs> there's a very clear mm -hmm. line between like acceptable and not. Um, and so I think when people, when people pass with their fan theories, from doing sort of web sleuthing solo to web sleuthing directly without permission of the family or permission of the group that that's a problem and for people who are interested in there's there's things like um uh people who there's a number of like sort of cold case websites that will actually like list like you know we're looking for a particular thing there's also a variety of different law enforcement agencies list like they have sort of John Doe or Jane Doe. Um, it's called the Doe project in particular is what I'm thinking of where they have lists of, of missing people and sort of, you know, maybe they've done an artist recreation of the, uh, uh, what someone would look like. Um, these are these are people who generally who bodies who are found um, past the point where a photograph could be taken. So instead, it's like an artist sketch or rendering of what maybe a person would look at. Uh, they are not private detectives, but you know you're certainly welcome to go through like these cases of the month and compare it with missing persons cases from your area um, and try to you know help find people. And and as of March of 2018, they've helped solve 81 cases. So those are 81 people who, you know, their families now know where they are. So there's certainly like things you can do if you're if you're into this and you want to be actively involved. There's tons of stuff if you're like me and you just like to, you know, sort of read and be passively involved. Uh, but just just be sometimes though what does happen is people wind up, you know, they find a pet suspect or something and they'll harass individuals or things like that. And that's not that's not good. Yeah. And so, yeah. Well, conspiracy theorizing like the Sandy Hook like saying that oh, it, yeah, it was yeah, a yeah. setup and then harassing the parents. Like that's a different version of the same thing. Like you're playing a game and you're trying to figure out what's happening. And, and in that case, you know, telling people that their kids didn't really die. Yeah, you can, you can be, and there are, there are people who, you know, um, even there, you know, while it's not a conspiracy theory that I agree with, or I think it's okay, you know, there are people who believe in that sort of thing and sort of passively engage in the internet. And then there are people who actually reach out to the families or show up to the bereaved in person, mm -hmm. you know, uh, and, and that to me is when it crosses the, the line from you're welcome to have an opinion. To, to, to quote a line from Mean Girls the Musical, everybody has opinions. That doesn't make them true. Mm-hmm. So going back to identification and understanding, especially of the perpetrator, with human trafficking, it can be something that's hard to grasp. Like even for me studying it multiple years, it, it's taken me time to understand like why would somebody want to traffic somebody else? 
how how could you do something like that? But before getting into that, just in general, like what's the point of doing that with true crime? Like what what's the value of understanding what some quote crazy person thinks? So I think it's for two reasons. I think one, it's that people are interested in deviant behavior, uh, behavior that's different. You know, it, it, most people can't think about killing somebody, let alone killing and then eating them, which is what Jeffrey Dahmer does, right? Most people would can't think about possibly killing their parents and, you know, then putting, like, their mom's head on a pike and yelling at it, and yet Ed Gein does. So it's it's just sort of how do you end up with all of these weird sorts of sorts of things. Um, you have the BTK killer, Dennis Rader, who just stops killing for a number of years. H.H. Holmes has a murder castle. He builds a murder castle. That's not normal. And so I think that there's just certain uh, a level of certain interest in what happens that made people be so fundamentally different from the norm. How how did you become this way? Why what were what was your plan? What was your thinking? And then also to the, you know, for all of these killers that we know about, um, they got caught, which I think is is part of it too. It's that, well, this sort of crime will never happen to me because I'm I'm not one of these girls, or because this killer has been been caught. Even in sort of big and true crime news recently was the Golden State Killer. Uh, was a suspect was arrested in that case, and that's from 1978. Joseph and the the guy's name is Joseph D'Angelo. But so even even in the case of when you don't necessarily know who the killer was, you know the killer had been dormant for for decades, and so the thought that well they must be gone. It's sort of a Jack the Ripper thing where they're gone and you don't have to worry. So there there's the level of entertainment sort of that in historical cases. On the other end of things, why I think people then want to become involved is because I think people like you know they want to do something. They they want to help. They're they're interested in you know you know that bad things happen to people and you may not be able to help directly, but maybe you can kind of live vicariously through these detectives that are solving crimes and catching the bad guys, putting them away. You know you're seeing good triumph, and that that might be a direct way you can do that. Okay, more specifically. And being that we are in the human rights realm and development and so on, what is the value to you of having insight into killers' minds? For for me, it's it's been super valuable in thinking about how, and not just you know not just a killer, but you know how how a killer, how uh, a serial rapist, how um, a serial abuser. Um, how do they think about other people, you know, because mm-hmm. you and I have talked about this, but like, how, how do you sell a person? How do you sell a child? And particularly like from us, we're thinking like in a U.S. context where it's not that, you know, we're selling a child because of, of deep financial needs where we think they're going to be okay. You know, we kind of think about like, if someone just came to my apartment right now and said, do you want to buy this kid? You can do anything you want to them. I'm going to sell you this adult. You can do anything you want to them. No, like it's not even a thought I would entertain, but then there are people who who not only entertain it but sort of seek this this out. This is this is a dream for them. This is what they want. And it doesn't make sense. And I don't understand it. But if you're going to do this work, I think you have to at least try to understand it. 
uh, these aren't aliens. These these are people. And so you have to try to kind of maybe meet them mentally where they are and see and see where it is they're coming from. And in the trafficking field, we don't have a lot of sort of ethnographic or biographical work or interviews with people arrested as traffickers. You know, it, it's very rare for us to get traffickers to admit, yes, I traffic people and here's why. Yes, I was a slave owner and here's why. We have a few um, texts from sort of like the transatlantic slave trade of, of people who owned other human beings, you know, sort of their diaries or, or their treatises. But they're writing from a time where having slaves was, if not normative, at least legal. So that's coming from a different perspective. So coming from people who are like, yeah, I know this is illegal. Yeah, I know I'm engaged in a criminal criminal enterprise, but I deserve to be able to sell people for X reason is, is not altogether that different from I deserve to kill people for X reason, which is generally because it's of some benefit to to that individual that they think is more important than the benefit of or, or, or the, the will, the, the right to live or the right to, to be free from others. And so for me, the, the true crime thing comes from, you know, we don't have a lot of direct why, why do people traffic. Uh, but we do have tons of murderers, man. They love, serial killers love, once they're in jail, to, to tell people why they did what they did. Um, and, and certainly there's probably a lot of grandstanding and, and changing and whatnot in there. But I think it's, it's certainly worth investigating yeah but with murder i mean the, well it's partially the point you're making like it, it's it's a different type of crime well it's a different type of crime but only sometimes like so if you look at the not maybe murder directly but this uh, serial rapist so if you look at the Ariel castro kidnappings this was the kidnapping of um michelle knight amanda berry um and gina de jesus so here we have Ariel Castro. So here you have a man who kidnaps three women um, between 2002 and 2004 and then keeps them in his basement locked up um, for over six years. And in that time, um, rapes, um, he, he uh, beats... Um, tries to murder one of them. The reason why that's not classified as a human trafficking case, um, and I'm sorry, they didn't keep him for six years, kept him for over ten years. Uh, the reason why it wasn't classified as a human trafficking case is that he 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 didn't get any material benefit from from keeping them. Um, he was keeping them for his own sexual satisfaction. Had he been sort of selling their labor, or selling their time, or or selling their sex that it would have been trafficking. But since she just kept them, it's just this horrible rape and kidnapping charge. Um, but just the, the, the mass violence that happened to this woman, had he brought a friend into the house to participate in this violence against them, it, he could have been hit with a human trafficking charge. And so there actually, I think, isn't a whole lot of difference there. I don't see a whole lot of difference in when a trafficker who's who's engaging in like say like you know traditional debt bondage of a family say like a, a bunch of bricklayers in bangladesh is is keeping a child from its birth until its death 
working for them day in and day out with with no outside life i don't see a huge difference in that from it, it is a form of murder it's a social murder yes but in terms of identifying it the state of trafficking may involve multiple types of brutality there's def- there's psychological there's usually physical there might be uh, there might be rape it might end up in murder but yep. it, but trafficking is more often than not something that's more than just a single event and murder at least the crime of murder is an event the crime of rape is an event one could argue that there might be other factors and other and there might be something that's ongoing that leads up to that mm-hmm. but trying to identify trafficking and trying to deal with a trafficker seems to be dealing with something that's more than a single event usually right yeah and and for that you kind of have to look i think and instead of just murderers you need to start moving into sort of serial killers you need to start moving into people who who held their victims for for a long period of time before killing them um that i think you need to sort of move away from sort of spree killers and sort of more into like like grooming killers yeah, like like killers um, who or um, you know people who did sort of serial assaults and, and have held on to people and used them for a number of years. So and, and you do see that in some cases, and so I think that matters too. I you know particularly when you're looking at like sort of like murders that occur for financial means when people kill to um, get financial benefit. You know, it, it's it's all together when you interview those people and they say, well, you know, I had I had to do this because I needed the money for this particular reason. You know, it, it's not super different in their justification for when you talk to a, maybe a trafficker of people who were like, well, I had I had to send these kids down into the mine mine where they might die because they need to make money. And that's and that's more important than my life where I could possibly die. But to clarify what I'm thinking here, part of why we don't have that many full true crime stories of trafficking is we don't have like the victim and perpetrator perspective. And yeah. Because there's multiple survivor narratives out there. But in those cases, it's the survivor's story. It's not including the thoughts of the perpetrator. Is that right? Yeah, no, I think that's true. And it's also just as you've pointed out, because it's a it's a much more long ongoing process, it's it's much more difficult to portray. You know, if you're gonna do a, a little thirty five minute story of a longer event, it's harder. It's harder to legally prove. We've talked about that and we've talked about, you know, sort of visas being granted to victims of human trafficking, uh, to stay in country. Um, you know, it's just it's much harder to prove. The burden of proof is much harder especially, you know, in cases of, of trafficking versus trafficker, it's just, it's difficult. It's, it's much more expensive. It's much harder to prove. Um, and so I, I, I think that then you don't see it as much. And then when you do see it portrayed occasionally in true crime, but more often in sort of fictionalized crime, like law and order, you then see sort of the, we're raiding a brothel, we're raiding a uh, sex, dungeon sort of thing it, it's that we're raiding uh, an illegal sex trade general generally with victims that are underage because then it's very clear that the the people involved generally women that the people involved are not there through through their own free will or through their own choice because they're underage victims or because they're like very clearly being held say in a 
brothel situation where they can't get out. All right. Yeah. And so in particular, like to, to go maybe back to that a little bit, what you see a lot of then is, is this child angle. And so when you're looking for like true crime cases that relate to human trafficking in any way, shape or form, as opposed to fictionalized ones, the ones that you hear the most about is Johnny Gosh. Um, and Johnny Gosh is just a tragic case. I think any true crime fan with their salts knows about Johnny Gosh. I also think that there's there's about a billion and a half resources on Johnny Gosh. Sword and Scale has, a, has an excellent two-part series on him. But the thing about Johnny Gosh is that he was a, a 12-year-old paperboy from Iowa who disappeared on September 5th, uh, 1982. And as of today, he's been missing for 35 years, 9 months, and 7 days. So... Uh, right away, it's tragic, right? Because a, a small child is literally, he does a thing that like American kids do every day to make a little bit of spare money. They they go and pick up and, and, and give out newspapers. Um, also, it was just a case that like from the beginning was handled very poorly by the local police. And his, his mom, Noreen Gosh, has just been like for the last 35 years that he's been gone, just been going like full speed ahead trying, trying to find her baby. Um, and so you really do feel for her. But what makes this pop up in true crime cases and in human trafficking cases is that his mother swears that, um, so no, nothing has been ever found of him, not a trace, but she swears that in 1997, her son Johnny returned to her uh, with an unidentified man. He came to his apart he came to her apartment and told her that he was the victim of a pedophile organization, a sex trafficking ring, and was cast aside when he was too old. Uh, and that he had escaped, but he's afraid for his life and can't return home for that reason. And then disappeared again. And so Noreen Gosh has, has sworn up and down ever since then that that, that, that was her son. Um, but it, a lot of people say that that you know, this 2.30 a.m. wake-up call she says that she got from her son who said that he was the victim of the sex pedophile ring. Um, it, you know, I, it does seem a little bit in, incredulous. Um, but what makes this even more interesting and sort of detailed and goes into sort of the conspiracy theory things that you and I have talked about is that in 1989 there was a 21 year old named tall named paul banaki and he came forward and said that he had also been abducted into a sex ring with johnny gosh as a teenager um and that he had been forced to serve in this sex trafficking ring until he uh aged out um and that this was a huge conspiracy that involved you know, it went all the way, uh, actually, to Vice President Bush. So it, it just it turns into this huge thing and this sort of huge comparison. And people will, will people are very firmly for, again, sort of this Johnny Gosh theory. But so you see then, though, since then, this deeply long-held fear that comes up in true crime cases, particularly in true crime cases dealing with young white children going missing – that these one young white children are being taken into a pedophile sex trafficking ring uh, that is organized. And so when, when these kids go missing, it is an act of trafficking. Uh, when in fact, we you know when most people go, go missing or are murdered, it's generally someone 
close to that. It's normally a family member who has committed the crime. Um, but it's just, it's so interesting to me that what we would, you know, you and I know that we have reports of trafficking that come in on a daily basis that are labor related trafficking, um, that we do have the occasional sex trafficking case come in generally of an adult. And yet for, you know, and sort of the, the true crime world, the, the only time trafficking really seems to be dealt with is when it's being dealt with as this sort of, It, it wasn't sort of a lone wolf, maybe pedophile, or it wasn't sort of this killer on the loose, but in fact, it's an organized sex trafficking ring. And for me, the problem I have with that is that I think it posits sex trafficking, but also just human trafficking in general, as this this thing that can only be done through very like intense organization or through like sort of shadowy government figures or sort of through these big, big forces. When people who work in the field know that trafficking actually happens at, at a much smaller level. So be between family members, within communities, within um, sort of social networks, that it, it, it's not normally this, this – I mean, it can be, mm -hmm. certainly, and certainly because it involves organized crime, it, it, there are times where it is. But it, it very rarely, I think, is sort of the shadowy syndicate that has like a filing cabinet. Of info, and I think it is much more often deeply vulnerable communities. Well, and there's something about like the one I sent to you, which was I think a like a restaurant owner who put somebody put an employee into a state of forced labor for a long time. Yeah, where it should be sensational, but it feels less sensational than some other types of stories. And yeah. that's that's partially because some aspects of trafficking, especially like that sort of scenario, are really mundane and dehumanizing on a daily basis, but not a spectacular story. Because a lot of trafficking is not spectacular as a sensational story, but it's just really a slow grind of one person controlling another person for financial gain and there's nothing there's nothing hollywood about it yeah and i think that that's that's kind of what i was trying to to get across with my my what sort of bothers me the most about it is that it's a i think a directly um that it's some of this this cloak and dagger uh spy versus spy sort of thing when in fact it, it's just like a it's a boot stamping you in the face repeatedly Mm -hmm. So we wanted to make sure we explain true crime before talking about trafficking and, and intersecting with trafficking where it was relevant, because uh, I also uh, don't know a lot about true crime, but I feel like I know more now. <laughs> you know more than you ever wanted to know. No, and I, I think my, my thing is, is that I would like to see sort of this true crime community that I, I see doing such amazing work and, it, and is so dedicated. I mean, the number of... When I, you know, for example, um, Mariska Hargitay from SVU, I know I make fun of SVU all the time, yet I watch it perpetually, mm -hmm. um, has a phenomenal organization that works with the testing of rape kits. And that actually is super helpful, too, in, in human trafficking cases, because some of those rape kits m involve perpetrators of human trafficking. 
or or buyers of people who have been trafficked. So I it, it's all super worth it, even if you just care about human trafficking. But then from a human rights perspective, it's huge, right? But beyond that, you know, I so I see like the fundraising that they do or the awareness raising, sort of the outpouring of support that they have for victims, the working through the DOE project of identifying people is so helpful. And I'd love to see some of that energy put forth into the human trafficking realm because most of the time the you know we're working with survivors not just victims we're we're working with the living we're we're working with individuals who who can be i hate to use the phrase rescued but but can be taken out of an otherwise exceptionally dangerous uh position so un unfortunately like you know with a murder victim all you can get is some form of, of justice but with a with someone who's being held in trafficking you can actually help them get their freedom um, and then all the possibilities of their life from there. So I would just love to see more people engage um, with human trafficking work who, who are, like me, also addicted to true crime. Sounds like a good place to end the podcast. All right. Send me all your true crime stuff, guys. I'm into it. All Follow right. me on Twitter. I post a lot of cats and serial killers. <laughs> serial killing cat. Serial killing cats. Uh, Peer-reviewed journals. I really, I cover it all. And uh, we will be back next week. We we have a bunch of podcasts scheduled for the next month or so. So, yep, it, we are your one stop sh one stop shop for all your human trafficking needs. Hmm. I don't know if that I didn't like that. sound good. It didn't sound good, but it's true. <laughs> Information. We have it. We want to give it to you for free. Tell your friends. Okay. Bye, everyone. All right. Bye. This has been Speaker for the Living. For extended notes and sources, visit our website at speakerfortheliving.com.